We are in a series that I have called Major Truth from the Minor Prophets. Uh, I was listening to uh, a, a pastor teaching in this part of the Bible, and he began by saying, uh, please open your Bibles and turn to the clean pages. Some of you get that. <laughs> it's that part of the Bible where there's not anything much written in there because we haven't spent very much time. It's kind of a hard part of the Bible. Sometimes to understand, I was talking to someone, they said there's so many hard things in this, but we're trying to lift out the major truths, the powerful truths that are in uh, these uh, books of the Bible, these prophetic books of the Bible. Last weekend, we were in the book of Hosea. The prophet Hosea um, shows us God's response to unfaithfulness. He was preaching to, prophesying to the northern kingdom. Remember that this was a time when, when Israel was divided. They had divided into two nations, two kingdoms with two kings and two setups of everything. And this northern kingdom uh, had slipped into a time of terrible unfaithfulness and idolatry. Uh, they had been greatly blessed. There had been tremendous prosperity and peace, and yet they had turned back to idols. And God responded to this by saying, uh, there's going to be judgment, and there's actually not anything you can do. You're, there's a judgment that's coming, and you're going to be scattered. He, he's very clear about it. But then also brings a message about how God pursues his people with unrelenting love. And that's the major truth that I wanted us to be sure and get from the book of Hosea, that God is faithful and will go to extraordinary lengths <clears throat> to win back the affection of his people, even when they are unfaithful. Let's read that out loud together. God is faithful. Let's do it a little stronger, okay? God is faithful and will go to extraordinary lengths to win back the affection of his people even when they are unfaithful. It's a huge thing, this story of how the, uh, Hosea is called to marry this woman who is unfaithful again and again. And, per, and then it's an image of God pursuing her uh, in those situations. Joel, uh, the, the second one in our list here, uh, prophesied to the southern kingdom that it, we call Judah, the southern two tribes. And uh, it's just three short chapters long. We don't even know the exact date of when Joel was prophesying. Um, we know that it was a time of prosperity because King Uzziah had uh, led them into a time of prosperity that was really close to the time when Solomon was reigning. It, it just tremendously great things were going on in terms of trade. Uh, they also had developed a strong national defense. They had developed uh, machines that would guard against siege, that would hurl arrows and, and would hurl boulders so that Jerusalem could not be sieged. And so it was a tremendous time of strength and security. And in the midst of that, uh, there was a terrible, overwhelming disaster of locusts. Now, we don't know, we're not told that this was in itself a judgment. It actually points to the future judgment uh, that's coming, which is about idolatry. But Joel doesn't preach about, now you've been idolatrous and you've been unfaithful or anything like that. It really uh, talks about how we deal with a time of disaster 
the aftermath of disaster. I have to tell you uh, that when I was planning this, I thought, well, let's just go in the order that they're in the Bible. And then I saw, well, this falls on Camp Sunday. Do I really want to preach on disaster on Camp Sunday? You should chuckle a little bit there, okay? Or even more, do I want to preach on disaster on Father's Day? No. <laughs> but yes, it's actually the perfect thing for us right now. So I want to invite you to uh, look with me at Joel chapter 1. We're going to hear about the locust invasion and begin to, to understand what that meant. In Joel chapter 1, beginning verse 1. The word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. Hear this, you elders. Give ear, all inhabitants of the land. Has such a thing happened in your days or in the days of your fathers? Tell your children of it and let your children tell their children and their children to another generation. What the cutting locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten. What the hopping locust left, the destroying locust has eaten. Awake, you drunkards, and weep and wail. All you drinkers of wine because of the sweet wine, for it is cut off from your mouth. For a nation has come up against my land, powerful and beyond number. Its teeth are lion's teeth, and it has the fangs of a lioness. It has laid waste my vine and splintered my fig tree. It has stripped off their bark and thrown it down. Their branches are made white. Lament like a virgin wearing sackcloth for the bridegroom of her youth. The grain offering and the drink offering are cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests mourn and the ministers of the Lord. The fields are destroyed. The ground mourns because the grain is destroyed. The wine dries up. The oil languishes. Be ashamed, O tillers of the soil. Wail, O vine dressers, for the wheat and the barley because the harvest of the field has perished. The vine dries up and the fig tree languishes, pomegranate, palm, and apple. All the trees of the field are dried up and gladness dries up from the children of man. Put on sackcloth and lament, O priests. Wail, O ministers of the altar. Go in, pass the night in sackcloth, O ministers of my God. Because grain offerings and drink offering are withheld from the house of your God. Consecrate a fast. Call it a solemn assembly. Gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord your God. And cry out to the Lord. Alas for the day. For the day of the Lord is near and as destruction from the Almighty it comes. Now let's stand and let's pray. God, we need your spirit to understand your word, to illumine your word. We need your spirit, God, to understand the times in which we live, the things that we have walked through, 
and live through. God, show us from your word the things you need for us to know. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. In the ancient world, there was probably nothing quite so feared as locust or the invasion of locust. You can hear it, how highly destructive it was. It actually describes four different waves of locust destruction. The ones that uh, the first didn't eat, the stuff the first didn't eat, the second ate, and then, and then more of the hopping ones come, and they just strip the bark. Everything is gone. Everything is bare. And, and this actually happens to this day. You can uh, look and read about it. There have been locust invasions in Africa in 2019 and 2020 that were horrible. But in the ancient world, it was the worst of the worst because nobody was flying in with relief efforts. Nobody was uh, dropping in packages of food or, or water or anything like that. There was an isolation. It was a terrible thing that the southern kingdom had just gone through. And, and the Lord uses this through Joel to warn that there are even greater times of disaster coming. And you need to know the power of the hand of the Lord. So Joel is, is prophesying in the aftermath of this disaster and doesn't really struggle with, with the whys of it specifically, doesn't, doesn't address any kind of specific sin or anything like that. But he asks this question, has such a thing happened in your days or in the days of your fathers? You know, I was thinking about it this week and it occurred to me that it seems like every generation has a thing that defines it. And by thing, I mean a disaster, a huge thing. I mean, it might have been uh, back in, in the early 1900s, the Spanish flu epidemic that killed so many people. Or, or it might have been uh, the Great Depression and the Dust Pole. Or, or it may have been Pearl Harbor. I mean, for my father's generation, Pearl Harbor just changed everything in a day for all the high school students and everybody was signing up, everybody was going to war over this attack that happened, this huge loss of life in one day. Many of us uh, think of the 9-11 attacks and, and we know exactly where we were and what was happening and what we were thinking on that day. I, I can tell you exactly who I was talking to and, and what occurred. As I was at camp this week, I looked out across the crowd because I was meditating on all of this and, I, and it suddenly just occurred to me that almost no one in my sight was even born when the 9-11 attacks happened. They have heard about it. They, they, they've been told, but in their generation, nothing has happened. And, and the, the huge thing that defines this generation is the thing we've just been through. Uh, the defining word is pandemic. I remember when I first heard that uh, being discussed uh, last year, the word pandemic uh, these days is the word. And uh, I remember when I first heard it being talked about, and I thought, uh, that sounds like an exaggeration to me. I mean, uh, I know there's going to be a bad flu and, and this sort of thing. And I, I heard healthcare people saying, we are preparing for the pandemic. This is what is coming. And I, I, I admit in my heart, I kind of scoffed at that a little bit. I, no, I think, I think that's being overblown. But we've now been through it, we pray, because we don't really know if we're through it. You don't know when you're through it till somehow you're really through it. 
I see articles about this all the time. When do we know it's over? And when do we know the end of its effects, even on the economy and on the global economy? But it's the big thing in this generation that we've just gone through. And the question is, well, what do we do with disaster and calamity? And, and, and we ask the question, why is there disaster? Well, it's a, it's a biblical question. Why do these things happen in our world? I mean, we're really smart people and we have lots of science and maybe that's part of the problem and this is all discussed. The world immediately, I'm, I'm talking about the worldly way of doing things, immediately begins to blame. Oh, it's the fault of this politician. No, it's the fault of that politician. It's the fault of this movement or this political group or party. Oh, no, it's the, it's the fault of this nation or that nation. And all of that is probably important to investigate and discuss. But you have to wonder, you know, where does God fit into all this? There's a saying in politics, never let a good crisis go to waste. Maybe you've heard that. It surprised me who first said it. It's attributed to Winston Churchill, was the one who said, you know, if there's a crisis in politics, let's use it. And, and I don't know about you, but I get kind of sick of that. <laughs> Would someone say amen? Like to the twisting of things to try to get either power or, or an agenda or something like that. As believers, as Bible people, we have to come to the conclusion that God has allowed the disaster. Doesn't matter what disaster it is. It could be a hurricane and we name all the hurricanes and we, we can name the ones that have been terrible, whatever it is. And, and I'll tell you why. God, if, if we believe that God is all powerful and God is God, God could have stopped Pearl Harbor. God could have stopped 9-11 attacks from happening. God could have stopped this pandemic. Why didn't God stop those things? I'll tell you when I get there and ask. I mean, really, it's, it, I'll often say it's above my pay grade. <laughs> but this is the truth that we believe in a sovereign God, the sovereignty of God. So, so Joel, as he addresses it, comes from a different kind of angle. And he makes a declaration that God is present in these times of disaster. And he uses disaster in specific ways. That's what I'd really like for us to get a hold of. It's a deep sort of thought. We find it as we go on through. The, the, the book is not real long, but we find uh, in chapter 1, uh, he lifts to us that disaster reminds us of God's provision. Uh, how the beasts groan, the herds of cattle are perplexed because there is no pasture for them. Even the flocks of sheep suffer. To you, O Lord, I call. I recognize everything comes from you. For fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness and flame has burned all the trees of the field. Even the beasts of the field pant for you because the water brooks are dried up. Fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness. Disaster does this thing. It reminds us that, that we take things for granted. Have you, have you been reminded of that during the past 18 months? I sure have. Sometimes it's the stupidest things. Like, I, boy, I sure took toilet paper for granted. 
I mean, when all of a sudden the big message that's going around is there's toilet paper at the Publix down on 192. Race down there and get some. <laughs> or water, fresh water. And sometimes we, you know, we go through these times, and my goodness, when there's a hurricane that strikes and electricity goes out, I mean, I am, I am so grateful when the AC comes back on. Amen? I'm an AC guy. But you know what, what disaster does is it reminds us uh, that every blessing we enjoy comes from the hand of God and his providential care. The book of James says every good gift comes from above. And we forget that a lot of the time, don't we? And it's something that we forget during the times of prosperity. The second thing that Joel lifts up to us is that disaster and calamities teach us about God's power. We, we get a sense of, uh, sometimes call it, uh, some call it the power of nature. Well, it's the power of creation, which is the power of God. His creation is amazing. I mean, even when we get into the science and, uh, of viruses and all these kinds of things, the fact that all of this is part of our creation, it's hugely powerful. In chapter 2, uh, he says, The Lord utters his voice before his army. For his camp is exceedingly great. He who executes his word is powerful. For the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? Joel uses this to point toward the day of the Lord, the coming day of the Lord. And he says, this, this, these locusts are the army of God because they're coming to teach you something and show you something. And they point toward another army that's coming. It's the army of Babylon that's going to come and destroy, devastate Jerusalem in an act of judgment and take away the Jewish people into exile. And so all of this is pointing in that direction. We need to understand the power of God. A lot of times we underestimate that, like most of the time. Uh, even when we say, well, we, our science is so good, I, and I, I believe in science, but we're so smart, we can fix all these things, and we have all, no, God is powerful, really powerful, and we need to cry out to him. Disaster is sometimes described as God's megaphone to get our attention, and disaster does function as a wake-up call. I think that we were very much people of prayer, back in 2019, and we cruised into 2020, and boy, did I don't know about you, but I learned to pray in whole new ways. I mean, I learned how to pray. And, and that's part of what it teaches us, speaks into our lives. C.S. Lewis is, is famous in his uh, treatise called The Problem of Pain. Uh, he wrote, God whispers in our pleasures speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. When we need to be awakened as a nation, when we need to be awakened as a people, as a church, or as a family, whatever it is, often it will be through disaster that he turns our, our ears and our heads and our eyes back toward him. He does that, and he uses it in that way. I was reading one uh, writer who was talking about C.S. Lewis and said, and why, why does it have to be that way? Isn't there a gentler way through arts and through music and song to get our attention? And yes, those things get our attention, but often uh, he suggested we are so asleep 
and in a dream that everything's okay. When it's not okay, then it takes disaster. It takes pain to awaken us so that we turn toward him. The third thing is disaster calls us to return to him. In uh, the next few verses in Joel chapter 2, Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts, not your garments. Don't tear your garments in grief. Rend your hearts. Return to the Lord your God. And I love this. For he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. He relents. He he. He turns back. When we've exhausted all of our own resources, we need to finally return to God and turn to him. The fourth thing that Joel lifts up for us in that same chapter is that disaster opens a door for restoration. In in verses 18 and 19, then the Lord became jealous for his land I take that to mean that he said, that's my land, locusts. (laughs) That's my land. He became jealous for his land and had pity on his people. The Lord answered and said to his people, behold, I am sending you relief. I'm sending you grain, wine, and oil, and you will be satisfied. And I will no more make you a reproach among the nations. The same promise was not made to the northern kingdom. There was no repentance there. There was no return to prayer. There was no rending of the heart in the northern kingdom. And so they become dispersed. But in the southern kingdom, there's this promise of restoration. The fifth thing is that in the aftermath of disaster, there is a promise that is declared. Verse 27 of chapter 2. You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel and that I am the Lord your God, and there is none other. And my people shall never again be put to shame. That is such a core truth. That he is in the midst of of his people, even when there is suffering. I I hope that you have felt that. I've known some that that they seem to, to, to run away, to turn away because they did not sense that God is in the middle of us and God is in the middle of what's going on. He's got everything under control. And we need to trust that. I am the Lord your God and there is none else. What a blunt way to say it. And so this is the major truth for this second minor prophet, that God is present in the midst of blessing and in times of disaster that we may know he is the Lord our God and there is none else. Would you read that out loud with me? Let's read that out loud. God is present in the midst of blessing and in times of disaster, that we may know he is the Lord our God and there is none else. Sometimes we need to hear it from the megaphone. Sometimes we need to hear it that way. Reminds me of a verse in the New Testament, Romans 8, 28, very familiar. You may have even memorized it. And we know that in all things, God works for those who, uh, for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. 
huge truth. But the big thing we don't want to miss is the sixth thing, and that is that disaster precedes outpouring. Disaster sets the stage for outpouring. Listen to what he says in Joel uh, chapter 2, 28 and 29. He says, and it shall come to pass afterward. Say afterward. Yeah, I want to do a little Jay Sanders here. Say afterward. Afterward. That we're in the afterward, okay? And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. It's this amazing promise that should sound familiar because we hear it around the late part of spring when we come to the time called Pentecost. We see this fulfilled in Acts chapter 2. And this was the text of the very first sermon of the Christian church on the birthday of the church on Pentecost, Acts 2, 17 and 18. And in the last days it shall be, God declares that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy and your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams. Thank you, Jesus. I'm getting there. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. They shall speak under the unction and the inspiration of the spirit, men and women and and young and old. And this is actually what we were walking in at summer camp. This is much of what we were experiencing at summer camp. Let me remind you of the text. Many of you memorized it this past week. Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. If you want to read that with me, you you may. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. It's about having the light of life from this outpouring. It's one of the seven I am statements, and it's the only one that Jesus turned right back around. He said, I am the light of the world. And then later he says, You are the light of the world. Matthew chapter 5, you are the light of the world. A city set on on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do the people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to the whole house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. This week, I saw that again and again. I saw young people, I saw a young man, and he knew the scripture like nobody's business. He was was asked to tell the story, and he got up and he just started preaching it. I was just like going, oh my goodness, this kid is preaching it up here, and and the spirit is being poured out. And so that's one of the things that we've been walking through and celebrating. Now, you might have noticed it's become popular these days to talk about being woke. It's kind of one of the words that's out there in the dialogue in the, in the uh, culture these days. And I remember when, when I first began to hear about it and notice that, I thought, whoa, what does woke mean? And, uh, and it's being used as an adjective. And my mother was an English teacher, I have to tell you. 
And, and she would have said, uh, Jeffrey, this is not an adjective. This is the past participle of wake. So please say that you are awakened or something like that. Uh, but in popular slang, in popular culture, uh, woke means to be conscious or, or aware. And so it, and that's actually been around for a while. Uh, the Oxford Dictionary for a couple of, uh, of decades has, has used the word woke as an adjective uh, to mean well-informed and up-to-date. Then in 2017, uh, the Merriam-Webster Dictionary defined it or gave one of the definitions to be aware of and actively attentive to important facts and issues, especially issues of racial and social injustice. It's one of the things that's in our dialogue in our culture at this time. It's one of the things that we're going to be addressing more and more as we get into, uh, into the prophets. And um, I, I've been, you know, thinking about this and struggling with this a bit. I think it's a really important thing for us to, to think about and to talk about and to look uh, within about. But suddenly it occurred to me, I think the, the Lord just showed me that when we talk about being aware, when we talk about being attentive, when we talk about being uh, attentive to issues of, of injustice, issues of racial injustice, I would suggest to you that Jesus was the most woke person who ever walked the face of the earth. Now, let me tell you why I say that. Uh, he, he, he wasn't of every race, but he was of a race, and he experienced prejudice he experienced the oppression of the Romans. He experienced people uh, looking down on him. They laughed at him because he was from Nazareth, uh, a Nazarene. And there were all these things that are at play. And we see him address that. He looked straight through it. It's just amazing to watch Jesus interact. He came up to the woman at the well and he said, I'd like you to get me something to drink. And she was like, whoa, <laughs> don't you recognize? We're divided. We're of different races. I'm, I'm a Samaritan and you're a Jew. We're not even supposed to be talking. We worship on a different hill. He said, well, you know, the time is coming and soon is here where we're going to worship in spirit and in truth. And she said, well, don't you even realize I'm a woman and you're a man and women and men aren't even supposed to be talking to each other and I'm here all alone at the well. And he says, you know what? The thing that you want, I've got. And, and, and he saw right through all of it. He said, well, why don't you go and get your husband? She said, well, I don't have a husband. He said, well, that's, that's right. He told her all about her and all about her past. And she goes off and becomes an evangelist because he was willing to bridge the gap. He knew all about this. He dealt with the Syrophoenician woman. And, and, and she came and, and, and he healed her, uh, her, her child. Again and again, he dealt with these things. There's no one more woke than Jesus. And it occurred to me that to be just aware of injustice isn't enough, is it? It doesn't solve a thing. What do you do if you're woke? You get upset about things, I guess, and you're, and you're, you're uh, agitated and, and, you, and you're angry about things. So I, I'd like to suggest a different phrase to, uh, that I, I, I will claim for myself, and I'll propose a different phrase, and that's the phrase lit, okay? It's right out of the book of Acts. 
Now, I, I looked it up, and actually a slang, it goes back to early 1900s, about 1910. It meant to be drunk, okay? Well, that's what they said at, in the book of Acts. When the Holy Spirit was poured out on them, uh, they said, uh, these folks are drunk. No, they were lit. <laughs> and and, and I, I don't know if you've seen it. I see it all the time. I see someone, they'll go off to a conference, and they come back, and I go, oh, <laughs> You got Jesus, didn't you? I had a pastor that used to say, they got a good case of Jesus. And they're lit. I, I see it at camp. I see kids that go to camp and they're kind of, you know, grumbling and this and that. And then maybe the second day or the third day, all of a sudden I see it. It's, it's happening. It's being poured out on them and they are lit. They're lit with the Holy Spirit. They're lit with the gospel of Christ. It's why we do this. So what do I mean by lit? I'll, I'll put it this way. If I'm lit, it means that I have the light of Christ in me. It's what we, were, what we were studying and trusting this week. If I'm lit, it means that I have received the outpouring and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. If I am lit, it means that I'm part of a generation that sees the Lord blessing through men and women, young and old. I don't know about you, but I get tired of people who say, I want to live in the Old Testament when, when only men could do things and only old people could do things. No, we live in the New Testament. We live in the Pentecost era. We live in the era where men and women, young and old, God's pouring out his spirit and he needs every one of us. And they shall prophesy. They shall speak by the power of the Holy Spirit. If I'm lit, it means that, that by the power of the Holy Spirit, I declare the good news of Christ. If, I, if I'm lit, it means that I'm lit to dream dreams and to see visions. We heard about that a lot this week. If, I, if I'm lit, it means that I'm lit to hear God and to speak for God and to proclaim God and his truth. So the question that I want to ask at the end of this camp celebration, this camp week, and those of you who were at camp, those of you who were praying, at camp, the question is, are you lit? Are you lit? Because we do have to participate in that. We do have to receive, and that's all we can do. His Holy Spirit received the gospel of Christ, received the blessing, declared that I'm going to live in this age, in this age of God's work. And that's my prayer for me, and that's my prayer for you, and that's my prayer for our church and every one of these young people. And that's my prayer for this next week of Vacation Bible School and the week that is coming in missions. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that I would be a pastor that is lit in the very best way with your Holy Spirit and with your gospel. I pray that we would be families that are lit dads and fathers who are lit, that we might receive your power, your guidance, not be all in ourselves and of ourselves, that we would be a church that is lit, that we would be a, a gathering of people as a church that is empowered by the Holy Spirit to declare the gospel. And God, I give thanks for that in, in advance, for all those victories in advance. In Jesus' name, amen.